the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko's message today is entitled, The Do-Nothing Christian. That's The Do-Nothing Christian, and you can find it online at ReachingYourHeart.com. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, you can call us at any time, 24-7. Here's the phone number, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Let's get underway with the first portion of the Do Nothing Christian. Here now is Pastor Michael Oxentenko. I want to thank you today for grace. Grace that has been poured out in Jesus for everyone here who needs a Savior. Father, that means all of us. And I pray this day as we look at what it means to be a do-something Christian, that you will help us, Father, to align with Jesus in this matter. In His name, Amen. I've been in a series in the Gospel of Luke. I decided that I would take the risk and preach on the Good Samaritan. I've never really liked the topic, be frank with you. Because when I study the topic of the Good Samaritan, what I find is, is that I do this introspection in my own life where I suddenly have to ask myself the question, if I am a Good Samaritan in my own sphere. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Am I a Good Samaritan? So as I started working on this sermon, on my way to the World Bank, I'd meet this homeless guy holding out his hand, a little drunk, saying, I'm hungry, man. Can you feed me? And you reach in and you pull out the money. But you ever feel guilty about giving to someone you think's not worthy? No? Sure you do. I would give to someone who wasn't worthy because I kind of thought, if someone isn't worthy, let's take the risk and be generous anyway. Who knows? Who is to ultimately determine whether or not someone's worthy or not? But as I was working this sermon, I was really put into a lot of situations where I was put on the spot to give to people I usually wouldn't give to. And so I'm just grateful that I can grow in the topic that we're talking about. Edmund Burke is credited with saying, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Now doing nothing in secret is a lot easier than taking the risk of doing something in the open that makes a difference. I mean, it's easy to opt out of service. It's easy to take the lazy route and to do nothing. Usually people can't figure out that that's the case anyway. When Hitler's evil racist anger reached out to strangle the life of the Jewish people, there were many Christians in Europe who found good Christian excuses for doing nothing to save them. I'm ashamed to say that our own denomination aligned with the Axis powers instead of the Allied powers during that time. I mean, it's just easy to go along with who's ever in charge without making the moral assessment that this power is headed toward a collision course with evil. It's just easy to do that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the exception, but not the rule during this time. He was hanged by the Nazis because he was unwilling to allow a madman to drag a generation of Germans to the second death. He said, I have to take a moral stand for the moral worth of the youth of our generation. And he was unwilling to let his Jewish brethren, yes, his Jewish brethren, die at the hands of a madman. So he died as a Christian martyr standing for Christian principles. 
I ask you the question, how can a person stand by and let another person die or be brutalized at the hand of an evil oppressor and do nothing about it? How is it possible on the eve of the advent of Christ in light of the great atonement to be a do-nothing Christian? In the law of Moses, God gave this commandment, Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. God brought Israel into existence by beating down the oppressor that beat them down for over 400 years. He stood up as a mighty God that intervenes to rescue his people from slavery. And the central lesson of the Exodus was meant for every citizen of Israel to understand and to experience for the rest of the future of the nation. They were to never forget that they had started out as an oppressed people, that they had started out with a heavy hand on them, and that God had come down to them. He had rescued and pulled them out of that mess. And so as a moral response to God's grace and salvation, they were to give grace. They were not to oppress. They were to be a people of mercy for the stranger and the foreigner who would come into their midst. The act of oppressing the stranger is a direct action or assault on the mercy of God. When God sends someone to reaching hearts or God sends someone to your life and that person needs your mercy and you oppress that person, dear heart, what's happening is that you have set yourself on a collision course with God's justice. The people of Israel at the time of Christ had taken the attitude that they were to avoid the stranger unless the stranger began to oppress them. God had made provision for Israel to stand up to their enemies when they were attacked. I mean, they weren't to endure eternal oppression without some type of intervention at some point. Numbers 10.9 illustrates this. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you. Now, here is the moral framework for conflict with someone who is engaging the nation. He says, when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you. In other words, you don't become the oppressor and you don't become the adversary, but you stand up against him. Then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and you shall be saved from your enemies. So God is the one who intervenes. God is the one who saves and there is a place for a moral response against evil. God defends the oppressed and He's committed to saving them from the oppressor. But if you choose to oppress someone, God will put you in His sights and when you're in God's crosshairs, you're in deep trouble because God knows how to make justice find its way to you. In Israel, the same law applied to the stranger, the native-born son of Abraham. I mean, there wasn't one moral code for an Israelite and another code for everybody else. If you were in Israel, there was one law. And that means the stranger enjoyed the justice that was given to the child of Abraham as if he were a child of Abraham. In Exodus 12, 49, the Bible says, There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Which brings us to a very interesting question. If there is one law for the stranger and the son of Abraham, then what do you do with this second commandment? You know, Jesus talked about the two great commandments. What do you do with this law in the law of Moses, which is found in Leviticus 19, verse 18? God says, You shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, this is an amazing commandment stuck in the law of Moses. Some people feel, well, Christian love was a new commandment Jesus gave. Moses didn't know anything about it. It's not in the Old Testament. This is far from the truth. The very framework of Christ's message in the Gospel of John, the very framework of the great commandments that he gives to the Christian church are given clearly in the Old Testament. Christ renewed them and made them new. So what does it mean here to love your neighbor as yourself? 
Now, to answer this question, you have to define what a neighbor is. So who is your neighbor? Who deserves a heart of love and compassion in your life? How far does love really have to go to be love? Leviticus 19.18 seems to indicate that your neighbor is your kinsman. I mean, you look at that verse. It says, the sons of your own people. Is that the limit of love? Are you simply meant to love your neighbor who happens to be a son of your own people? So how can you have one law for the native and the stranger if you're only supposed to love your neighbor and the definition of neighbor is a son of your own kinsman? How can there really be a law for all in the promised land? The rabbis taught that you should love your neighbor but hate your enemy. I mean, they took these verses and they said, well, it limits what it means to be a neighbor. So go ahead and hate everybody that's against Israel or outside of Israel. There are some people who believe that every religion is a religion of love. Have you ever heard that? You know, all religions have love as the foundation principle of their religion. Have you ever heard that kind of thing? Am I the only one that's heard that? Some of you have heard that. Okay, the rest of you hear it now. Some people say that. It's a form of optimistic ignorance, really. The Taliban hung a seven-year-old boy as a traitor. I mean, I can't fathom that kind of thing. They hung a seven-year-old boy as a traitor. You know what his crime was? He told the police where they'd put the bombs because he didn't want people to die. And so they hung him as a traitor. And of course, they were saying Ali Akbar and all this stuff as they were praising God in that religious service, which was a hanging. Karzai said it right. He's not a traitor. He's just a boy. He's a seven-year-old boy, and you just don't do this to children. But there are religious philosophies in the world in which we live, dear heart, and wake up to it that teach hatred as the foundation of what they believe. And it's possible in the Christian sphere. It's possible right here to actually have the same sentiments and attitudes come into our religious experience. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that hate kills children, innocent people in relationships. Hatred is the most wretched kind of infection in any kind of religious experience. So how far does love go? Does love go where you don't want to go in your life? Does love go all the way to the person you don't like or you don't feel comfortable with or even, let's go further, that you have chosen to despise because they hurt you? This is the context of the story of the Good Samaritan. Take your Bibles Turn with me to Luke 10, 25-29. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, we've asked the same question. What do I need to do, God? Really, boil it down to the raw essentials. What do I need to get into heaven? He's asking that question. And within the question is the assumption that what we do really makes a difference in eternity. Now, it's significant here. Christ does not come to him and say, well, listen, let me straighten you out on this righteousness by works idea. He does not do that here. In fact, Jesus accepts the assumption that what you do really does matter in eternity and for eternal life. Transitioning to verse 26, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read? Christ said, take your Bible out. Tell me what's in it. It's got the answer. Now, Jesus was looking for the answer in the law of Moses. There are many Christians today who don't believe the law of Moses has any bearing whatsoever on our walk with God or our Christian commitments. Christ didn't buy into that theology. He said, take out your Old Testament, the law of Moses, and see what you find in there. He's asking the lawyer to explain the law. Verse 27, and the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, the great commandment. And with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself, now he transitioned to Leviticus 19.18, which Jesus recognized as the second great commandment. 
And he said to him, Christ here responds to the lawyer, you have answered right, do this and you will live. You know, we sometimes, when we speak of faith, we fail to understand that faith is measured. Faith is understood by really what we do in our relationships with others. How we treat people, how we honor people, how we care about them defines who we are. Real life and eternal life means a selfless life that worships God with a whole heart, pure and undivided. And when you love God with a whole and pure heart, you will love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer was smart enough to figure out that Jesus here was moving in for the intellectual kill. The great advocate was after the lawyer to make him come to grips with what he was trying to say. So the lawyer started maneuvering as lawyers do. Have you ever argued with a lawyer? Anyone here ever argued with a lawyer? Anyone? Now, I have noticed certain things when you argue with lawyers. They're trained to argue back. And if you engage them, it takes a while to get out of the fix. In fact, I've had the unfortunate circumstance of arguing with lawyers, and they had me on the clock, and I had to pay them for the debate. I mean, lawyers are like this. I mean, it's not a good thing. You've got to really watch the time you spend with lawyers. It can, it can really get out of hand. Verse 29, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Ah, he thinks he has him on the line. The lawyer knew the answer in the law of Moses. He thought his neighbor was a son of Abraham and no one else. His kinsman, it was the son of his kinsman. And so the rabbis had said, love your neighbor, mean your fellow Jewish brethren, and hate your enemies, those who oppress your nation. That meant love your fellow countrymen and hate everyone else. So what they had done is they had institutionalized racism right into the theology of the rabbinical code. So Jesus starts a story for the lawyer that defines who a neighbor really is. Luke 10, verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now in the story, the man begins a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. So much is contained in the simple description of his journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. The text says he went down to Jericho. Jerusalem was the queen of cities for the Jews. Isaiah said in Isaiah 2.1, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, that's Jerusalem, shall be exalted as the highest of the hills. And so you can't get any higher than Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the highest city. And so Jesus rightly says he went down from Jerusalem. Implied in the story is the assumption that the man was a Jew, a son of Abraham, that he started out in the exalted place of his birth or perhaps his religious affiliation, he went down to an inferior city, the city of Jericho. The name Jericho is related to a word that means fragrant in Arabic, but some have postulated that the word Jericho is related to the Hebrew word for moon. It's very close. The moon meaning, I think, makes more sense here because Jericho was a city that had an ancient cult for the worship of the moon god. It was also a fragrant city because of the balsam trade. So both work. It's not an either-or choice here. In Jesus' day, the city was a prosperous city full of palm trees and living springs. It was favored by Herod the Great and Archelaus with beautiful building projects, and so it was a highly developed city. It was full of luxurious balsam plantations, as I said, and it was a significant city for the raising of Roman taxes because it had a vital economy that was on the boom. Zacchaeus, as we know, came from the city of Jericho. And Jesus went all the way out of his way, actually, to go there and find him in a tree to say, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. Jericho was a rich and prosperous place to be. It represented the wealth of the Roman world in the shadow of Jerusalem. So in the story, the man fell among thieves as he went down to Jericho. Dear heart, when you forsake the city of faith, 
for the downward path that leads to the world. You too can fall among thieves. There is a timeless element in this story. The ancient church father Origen claimed that the early Christians saw this story as kind of like an allegory of the plan of salvation. Here's how they kind of interpret it. The man who left Jerusalem represented Adam. Jerusalem is paradise. Jericho is the world. The robbers are hostile forces. The devil and his angels who robbed Adam blind, who beat him up, and who made him submit to their authority under sin. The priest in the story is the law of Moses. The Levite is the prophets. Here, the disconnect with the old order is occurring. And the Samaritan was considered Jesus Christ himself. Christ came to seek and save the lost, to carry him to a safe place to restore the beaten down. So in this sense, Jesus is the good Samaritan. But when you read the story, that's really not what Jesus seems to be getting at here. He's not trying to portray himself. He's really going after this man's relationship to people he doesn't like. In the story, Jesus said that a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. In the Bible, the city of Jerusalem is the exalted city of God. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalms 132. Look at verse 13. It says, For the Lord has chosen Zion, that's the city of Jerusalem. He has desired it for his habitation. And then in verse 14, he says, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So if the man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he's leaving the house of faith for the house of commerce. He's leaving the house of God's presence for the house of Roman occupation more so. And so he is in a decline in his religious experience, at least in principle. The text says he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. In the story, there's a transition from the city of God, the city of faith, the city of promise to the city of the world. And in the story, the robbers strip him on the way down. You know, maybe that's happened to you. Maybe you have found yourself not attending church lately. Maybe not reading your Bible as much as you should. Not actively involved in serving God within the church. Whining and complaining because the church doesn't meet your needs. Having slipped into an egocentric view of reality. Rather than making yourself a humble servant for the extension of life and love to others. You see, it's possible to go down today just like it was then. Now, what happened when he went down? In the story, the robbers stripped him on the way. They beat him before he reached his destination. They left him half dead on the way. Now, when a person leaves God for the world, and it happens all the time in the church, people come to church, they get sucked into the home entertainment stuff, they start reading stuff they shouldn't, or they just simply neglect God and grace and prayer until finally they're out of God. So when a person leaves God for the world, they surrender the white robe of God's righteousness for the nakedness and trouble of the world they seek. You see, in the story, they took his garments away from him. Nakedness is the condition that creates shame. Shame comes after you're naked. And so nakedness is the state of being unable to show yourself to anyone because you're exposed and so you hide, you defend, you become self-centered and self-defensive instead of putting your life out for others and your shame becomes what others see when you are naked. When a believer leaves God for the world, people no longer see God in that person. All they see is the shame. It comes out. It bleeds out. I believe by nature a Christian is not an egocentric person by spiritual definition. A Christian is not about themselves, their rights, what they want to do, what's fair for them, how they've been treated. A Christian has learned because they have embraced the cross to say, you know, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. 
What matters in my life is living for the people that Jesus died for because Christ died for me. And so they put that other person first and they let their rights go for the good of others. A Christian is not egocentric. Everything is not about me if you're a Christian. The robe you wear is Jesus' robe. And when you wear His robe, people see Jesus in you. And so that's the purpose of the Christian life, to reveal Christ. So the robbers stripped the man of his robe. Maybe it was the white Jewish kittle that represented the righteousness of Christ. Jesus said in the story, they beat him. The Greek says literally, they placed upon him plagues. They pummeled him with plagues. God reserves plagues for his enemies in the Pentateuch. We see them in the seven last plagues on the plagues of Egypt. But here they pummeled him with plagues. In the story, the man stands outside of the mercy of God with plagues on his body because he has left the house of faith for the house of the world. He represents the fallen children of Abraham or any other child who leaves a relationship with God and the protection of God for a life of willful disobedience. He gets pummeled with plagues. The text also says they left him half dead. Now half dead means you're in trouble but you're not dead yet. Maybe you came to church this morning and you have left God for the world. Maybe you have lost the white robe of Christ's righteousness and you know it. And maybe you're in decline in your spiritual walk and you don't feel God's peace. You don't sense God's presence in your life. And perhaps you have felt the heavy blow of demons and their oppressors beating you down hard with heaven's plagues, heavy on your heart. And maybe you sit in church this morning abandoned by the robbers that beat you up You sit, but in your heart, you're laid out. You don't have any strength to get up. And maybe you're half dead here. Dear heart, if you're half dead here, there's good news for you. Now hear what I'm saying. If you're half dead here, God has not left you 100% dead today. Half dead means you're half alive. And if you're half alive, there's hope you can get better, you can recover, you can grow to a fuller life. So don't focus on the negative of your experience. Look at the little life you have and hang on to it right now. It's at this point in the story that Jesus introduces the figure of a priest. The priest was going down the same road as the man who fell among robbers. Surely the priest would care enough to help a fellow son of Abraham survive since he had fallen in the streets. I mean, he was in fact the neighbor that Moses had defined. Verse 31. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Let's be frank here. Just because you're a priest doesn't mean you're a man of God. Is that right? I mean, what's the scandal going on in a church I'm not going to mention with all this kind of stuff that's happened? And priests can't say they're sorry. You know what I mean? And there's been one generation of children after another to suffer at the hands of this stuff. Just because you're a priest doesn't mean you're a man of God. Let's bring it closer to our church. Just because you're a conference president or the president of an institution or a leader in our organized work does not mean you're a man of God either. Am I right? It doesn't mean you're a man of God. Just because you got elected to an office just means you have the office. It's possible to feel that somehow a position protects you and elevates you to where you can be respected enough and you are by that position a man of God. That does not make you a man of God. You would expect a shepherd to go in search of the sheep. In the story, the priest saw the naked and beaten son of Abraham on the other side of the road. Jesus says he passed him by on the other side of the road. He stayed far away from the man he should have saved and that he could have saved. And he moved quickly on his journey, creating distance between him and that man who was technically his neighbor. 
Thanks for listening today. If this message is ministered to you, remember there are many more just like it at reachingyourheart.com. If you're a regular listener to this broadcast or if you've just tuned in for the first time and have been inspired by this sermon and you'd like to partner with us to help keep these radio broadcasts on the air, you can simply call us at 1-888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE, day or night, 24-7. One of our team is available to assist you right now. We believe God is moving across the globe, touching lives and reaching hearts. And you are helping make this a reality with your gift of any amount. These are urgent times and God has an urgent message. God's message in Revelation is one of warning and encouragement. And it's a personal appeal to all of mankind. It is his final message before sweeping changes occur across the globe. Events that will take place just prior to Christ's second coming. You see, God doesn't want his church to be surprised by the events that will take place. He wants his church ready for his return. We have a book titled God's Last Altar Call that will encourage you and help you understand what events must take place as found in the book of Revelation. We'll send you this book for a donation of any amount and pray that you will be encouraged to know that you can discern the events that must take place prior to his second coming. Please call at any time, 24-7-888-244-HOPE. And with a donation of any amount, we'll send the book right out to you entitled, God's Last Altar Call. We pray that you will be lifted up by the biblical insights in this book and grow spiritually in your walk with Christ. Join us again next time for another edition of Reaching Your Heart. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.